The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On Christmas Eve 2007, a dusting of snow covered the mountaintops of rural Washington, completing the seasonal atmosphere for Judy and Wayne Anderson's favorite night of the year. Everything seemed perfect in their cozy country home as they eagerly anticipated the arrival of their children and grandchildren. They had no way of knowing it would be the last Christmas the family would ever spend together. Join me now as we take a look at one of the most horrific and senseless mass killings in the history of Washington State. You'll hear how pent-up feelings of familial betrayal, jealousy, and greed exploded into a vicious rampage during what was supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. About 25 miles east of Seattle sits the rural town of Carnation, Washington, nestled in the foothills of the Cascade Mountain Range. Although it's still close enough to the big city for a work commute, the 2,000 residents of Carnation prefer living among the thick forests and cow pastures. Many houses sit on massive properties surrounded by the Mount Baker Snoqualmie National Forest. The town center sits where the Tolt and Snoqualmie rivers converge, surrounded by a labyrinth of backcountry roads. It's in this picturesque setting, it's easy to forget, the largest urban population in the Pacific Northwest sits right next door. In those days, very few people knew the back-winding country roads better than 61-year-old Judy Anderson. A 17-year veteran mail carrier from the Carnation Post Office, she was well-known in town for always going the extra mile, the type of person who'd bring your mail right to your doorstep if she knew you were ill. On December 24, 2007, Judy had just put a roast in the oven, set out some snacks, and went into her craft room to finish up wrapping gifts that would be open later that evening. As Judy tinkered around excitedly, preparing for everyone to arrive, her husband Wayne sat relaxing in the living room, watching TV. Wayne was 60 and recently retired from the Boeing Company, where he worked for 27 years. Over the years, he'd been known for his strong work ethic and positivity, successfully rising through the company's ranks, becoming a tool engineer. On that particular night, Wayne was in good spirits, Everyone knew Christmas was his favorite time of the year. He loved the presents and decorations. Most of all, he loved having his entire family gathered together under one roof. Wayne adored his family, and despite his six-foot stature and weighing approximately 270 pounds, it wasn't uncommon to see the burly man performing gymnastic stunts in front of the family, hoping to conjure a smile or two. Wayne and Judy's son Scott and his wife Erica, both in their early 30s, 
arrived later in the evening with their two children, five-year-old Olivia and three-year-old Nathan. Scott had been big into sports and part of practically every team in high school, but he also excelled academically. Although Scott dreamed of following in his dad's footsteps and becoming an engineer, he struggled with high-level math. Instead, he earned his degree in business administration from the University of Washington, and after graduating, he began working for a major construction company. In 1999, Scott married his high school sweetheart, Erica, who trained as a pastry chef and worked as an assistant manager at a bakery. After giving birth to their daughter, Olivia, in 2002, Erica became a full-time stay-at-home mom, still hoping one day to pursue her dream of opening up her own bakery. Five-year-old Olivia was in kindergarten and loved horses and dancing. Her younger brother Nathan was just three and still in diapers. It would be the fifth Christmas. Three generations of the Anderson family would gather together to celebrate. It would also be the last. Linda Teeley had worked alongside Judy Anderson for the past 11 years as a substitute mail carrier at the Carnation Post Office. Over the years, the two women became best friends. On December 26th, Boxing Day, Linda arrived for her morning shift at 6.30 a.m., notoriously one of the busiest days at the post office. So when Judy was late for her shift, although surprised, Linda wasn't initially overly concerned. But after 30 minutes went by and Judy still hadn't arrived, Linda knew something had to be up. So she did what any good friend would do in that situation and hopped into her truck and headed over to Judy's place to check in on her. When Linda arrived at the property, she was surprised to find the gate at the front of the driveway locked, but that wasn't about to deter her from checking in on her friend. After parking her truck at the driveway base, Linda made her way up to the house, a seven-minute walk. As she headed up, Linda was surprised not to be greeted by the Anderson's dog. In fact, there wasn't even any barking. Things were just not adding up. As she got closer, Linda noticed the front screen door wide open. As she knocked and called out repeatedly to her friend, she got no answer. So she tried the door handle. Surprisingly, it was unlocked. As she was about to enter the house, she wondered why the front gate would be locked, but the house left open. Nothing could have prepared her for what she was about to discover inside. Moments later, Linda would be dialing 911. Uh, there's been a murder. There's three people dead that I can see right now. Inside? I just came up. She works with me. Inside the house? Yes. What do you see? There's a baby and a man and a woman, and she's my best friend. For over half an hour, Linda remained online waiting for police to arrive. During the call, she told the dispatcher it must have been a family member. Maybe Michelle did it. She's very unstable. Michelle Anderson was Wayne and Judy's youngest child, born in 1978, three years after her brother Scott. In high school, she was quiet and shy, 
trying to find her identity as she passed through several distinct phases. Similar to her brother, Michelle was also into sports. Throughout her adolescence, Michelle dated a series of boyfriends her friends described as weird. Her school friends were mainly outlier kids, and at home she always considered herself the black sheep of the family. Michelle complained to friends that her mom Judy was mean to her and didn't understand her, while her father Wayne could sometimes be abusive. However, no matter how much friction existed between Michelle and her parents, she never said a bad word about her brother Scott. She loved him dearly and trusted him completely. But that all changed when Scott and Erica married. The once close siblings spent less and less time together, leaving Michelle feeling lonely and jealous of the couple's relationship. Michelle blamed Erica for creating a wedge between her and her brother, and her hatred toward her would only intensify as time passed. It seemed the chasm developing between Michelle and Scott had deeply affected her, and over time, it would contribute to the changes in her personality. Increasingly, she seemed unwilling to take any responsibility for herself, always blaming everyone else for her problems. Wayne and Judy also noticed that Michelle seemed to lose her passion for sports and overall interest in her appearance and self-care. As Michelle became a young adult, her taste in unusual men hadn't changed. And at 24, she met a guy named Joe McEnroe on an online dating site. Joe was a high school dropout with a rare blood disorder that caused frequent nosebleeds. That combined with his very noticeable speech impediment made Joe overly self-conscious and caused him to become a bit of a recluse. As an extreme introvert, Joe spent most of his time playing Dungeons and Dragons online and never bothered getting a driver's license. On top of being shy, Joe was also socially inept, something that became painfully evident as he tried to navigate the online dating scene. On four separate occasions, Joe traveled out of state by bus or plane to meet women he began interacting with online. He believed they were actually interested in meeting him in person. He even mailed his possessions out ahead of his arrival, clearly intending on staying a while. However, the first three women he traveled to see never even showed up to meet him. What Joe had perceived as relationships were in fact nothing more than one-sided infatuations he completely misread as mutual. The fourth woman who actually did meet Joe was Michelle. After meeting, Joe thought perhaps he'd been catfished because Michelle looked nothing like the woman in the photos she'd sent him. According to Joe, the Michelle he met in person was far heavier than the woman in the photos, wasn't wearing any makeup, and looked like she'd just rolled out of bed. But their first dismal encounter didn't seem to phase either of them, and they began dating and soon moved into a trailer park together. Michelle worked as a security guard for Nintendo, while Joe worked at a local Target. Neighbors at the trailer park immediately took notice of the pair because of their very bizarre behavior. It seemed as though the couple were trying to avoid any possible human interaction. Covering their windows with black plastic garbage bags, 
They also erected a chicken wire fence around their property. If someone so much as stepped on their driveway, the couple would freak out and scream at whatever neighbor had trespassed. Arguments between Michelle and Joe were often overheard by anyone with an earshot, usually Michelle yelling at Joe about their finances. On one occasion, an old classmate of Michelle's dropped by to visit. When she asked what was up with the window coverings, Michelle told her it was to keep the neighbors from spying on them and that everyone was basically just out to get them. Michelle's depression, anxiety, and paranoia were on full display. In 2006, Michelle and Joe left the trailer park and moved into a trailer on her parents' property. It was a move Michelle wasn't keen on, but after losing her job at Nintendo, it seemed like their best option. Wayne and Judy agreed to allow them to stay rent-free, along with paying for Michelle's vehicle insurance. Not long after, Joe quit his job at Target, leaving them both unemployed. Michelle's friends, former neighbors and family, say Michelle was constantly complaining about money, never shy about telling people how destitute she was. Part of the reason? Because Michelle claimed her brother Scott owed her $40,000. Why exactly remains unclear. We only know that neither Scott nor their parents agreed with the claims. After living in her parents' trailer for nearly a year, Michelle's resentment and anger toward her family grew to an all-time high, and Michelle was about to snap. The final straw came when Wayne and Judy told their daughter she needed to start paying rent. Her parents believed a bit of tough love might help motivate her and Joe to find jobs. Michelle believed otherwise. She'd convinced herself that everyone was just stepping on her, and it was time to start making plans to enact her revenge. She decided the perfect time would be Christmas Eve, the one night of the year. The whole family would be together in one place. On December 24th, Michelle and Joe climbed into their pickup truck, loaded two handguns, and drove up to Wayne and Judy's house before anyone else had arrived. After parking, the couple headed inside. Concealed under Joe's jacket was a 357 Magnum revolver. At the same time, Michelle hid a 9mm semi-automatic Ruger in a rolled-up sweatshirt. As Joe settled into the living room to watch TV with Wayne for the next half hour, Michelle helped Judy prepare a green bean casserole for dinner. Judy then headed into the craft room, hoping to finish wrapping the last of the presents before the rest of the family arrived. Joe followed behind her, under the guise of keeping her company as she wrapped, but what he was really doing was distracting her from what was about to take place in the living room. As Judy sat down to wrap presents and Wayne continued lounging on the couch, Michelle drew the handgun from her sweatshirt and fired a single shot toward her father. In total shock, Wayne yelled out to her, What the hell? She'd missed and was trying to pull the trigger a second time, but the gun was jammed by the fabric of her sweatshirt. Just then, Joe rushed into the living room to find Michelle struggling with the gun. As Wayne got up from the couch and attempted to charge Michelle, 
Joe pulled out his gun and pulled the trigger. He hadn't missed like Michelle though, and Wayne fell to the floor. Joe then walked over and shot Wayne once more in the head, killing him instantly. Amidst the commotion, Judy also ran out of the craft room, witnessing Joe killing her husband. Horrified and in a panic, Judy attempted to flee, but found herself at a dead end in the kitchen. She then wedged herself between the refrigerator and the wall. With nowhere to go, Joe shot Judy in the neck and watched as she collapsed on the floor. Before firing a second shot, he told her he was sorry. Judy was now also gone. Michelle and Joe had just murdered both of her parents in cold blood, but before the other family members arrived, they had a few business matters. They needed to get their story straight and needed to hide the bodies. Michelle dragged her mother's body out to a small shed in the backyard while they covered Wayne with a roll of scrap carpeting. The couple then set to work, using towels and rugs to mop up the blood in the kitchen and living room. The cleanup was never meant to be an extensive job to get rid of evidence police might find. They only needed it to look clean enough so Scott and Erica wouldn't notice anything off when they arrived. At least, not immediately. Around 5 p.m., Scott, Erica, and the children arrived and immediately settled into the living room. Kicking off her shoes, Erica began relaxing on the love seat. At the same time, Scott posted up in his favorite seat at the end of the couch. Nathan and Olivia began playing straight away. When Scott asked where his parents were, Michelle told them they were in the bathroom. She then took the opportunity to confront her brother about the money she claimed he owed her. The siblings then began arguing, but the argument wouldn't last long because Michelle suddenly pulled out the 357 revolver again and shot Scott in the chin and into his chest. But he was still alive and attempted to wrestle the weapon away from her hand, soon collapsing on the floor, unable to move. Taking aim at Erica, Michelle fired several shots, striking her at least twice. When the gun ran out of bullets, Erica, who had been seriously wounded, still somehow managed to climb her way over the back of the love seat and reached for the cordless phone. If he didn't catch what was said on the phone call, it was also unclear to the 911 dispatcher with over nine years of experience. When the call disconnected, the dispatcher immediately redialed the number, but after a few rings, the call went straight to voicemail. The dispatcher followed protocol for disconnected calls and dispatched two officers from the Kings County Sheriff's Office. She informed them that although nothing decipherable was heard during the call, it sounded like a party in the background, or perhaps people arguing. What she actually heard on the call was the voice of Erica Anderson, mortally wounded, pleading with Michelle and Joe not to shoot her children. When Joe realized Erica was on the phone, 
He grabbed it from her hand and broke it, tearing the batteries out. Nathan then picked up the batteries off the floor and began playing with them. Placing three more bullets into the 357, Joe delivered fatal shots to Erica and her children. The final shot was fired from the 357 Magnum into Scott's abdomen as he lay on the floor. Officers wouldn't arrive at the property until 5.45 p.m., half an hour later. Responding to the 911 call, two police cruisers pulled up to the Anderson property at 5.45 p.m. and saw the gate to the driveway closed and locked. It's important to consider that the information officers received from dispatch didn't indicate any immediate threat to life, so the officers decided they didn't have any legal cause to breach the gate and enter the property. In the darkness, they listened for signs of a party or anything else that might give them an excuse to enter, but they didn't hear anything. They also checked with the only neighbor within possible earshot of the Andersons, but they hadn't heard anything out of the ordinary. Officers then left without ever stepping foot on the other side of the gate. After the murders, Joe and Michelle left town in their pickup truck, but their escape plan hadn't been well thought out. In fact, it hadn't been thought out at all. A few minutes into the trip, Michelle decided they needed to return to her parents' property to close and lock the front gate. After locking the gate, the couple agreed to drive north into Canada. Michelle remembered hearing a story about a murderer who'd successfully crossed the border despite having the murder weapons inside of his vehicle. About an hour later, they reached the town of Goldbar, approximately 17 miles northeast of Carnation and entirely in the wrong direction. Realizing they were lost, they bought a map and got back on track. While driving, they searched for the right place to dump the handguns, but each time Joe would ditch the weapons inside a trash can or dumpster, Michelle would change her mind saying, it wasn't a good enough spot, forcing Joe to dumpster dive and retrieve them. This cycle repeated at gas stations, parks, and random dumpsters they passed along the way, until Michelle finally decided on the perfect spot. Still a Gowamish River, along Interstate 5, just 50 miles north of Carnation. At long last, they'd finally gotten rid of the guns, once and for all, and threw them into the river. But the indecisiveness of the couple hadn't ended. For some unknown reason, they changed their minds about fleeing to Canada and drove back to the trailer on early Christmas morning. Immediately, Michelle fell asleep while Joe jumped into the shower and settled in to play some video games. When Michelle woke up, the couple headed back to her parents' house to clean up more evidence before leaving again at nightfall. This time, they left with a full box of towels they'd used to clean up the blood and decided to head to Las Vegas to get married. They'd convinced themselves it'd make a decent alibi. As they drove through downtown Carnation, Joe spotted a dumpster and threw the box of bloody towels inside, 
before realizing it was a recycling dumpster. Once again, he dove inside retrieving the box before they continued driving south. Looking for the right place to dispose of the towels was deja vu of the night before. As they continued driving, Michelle became paranoid about the truck being overdue for an oil change and was choosing that very moment to fixate on it. She'd also insisted on taking their pet cat along for the trip, but because it wasn't used to riding in a vehicle, they made frequent stops to calm the cat down. The couple wasn't going anywhere fast, and things only got worse when a blizzard hit, drastically decreasing visibility and making driving at night nearly impossible. During their circus of a road trip, one of the tires of the pickup went flat, but instead of changing it themselves, they decided to call roadside assistance. It was already 5.30 in the morning of December 26th, and they'd only made it about two and a half hours south of Carnation. Everything seemed to be going wrong, and Michelle and Joe began losing confidence in their Las Vegas alibi. After getting their tire changed, they sat in the truck on the side of the interstate for about 45 minutes before turning around and heading back toward, you won't believe it, or by now, maybe you will, Carnation. On their way back, at 10.26 a.m., Michelle decided she needed to stop at her bank of all places to make a lease payment on her pickup. By that point, Linda Teeley had already made the gruesome discovery of the bodies, and police had already been on the crime scene for over an hour. After their trip to the bank, Michelle and Joe headed home. At 11 a.m., the couple pulled into the Anderson property as rows of police cars lined the streets. After parking the truck, the couple calmly walked up the driveway, approaching lead detective Scott Tompkins. When Detective Tompkins encountered Michelle at the scene, he prepared to deliver a death notification. He gently took her aside for an official interview, while Joe was interviewed by a different detective. As the detective began to question Michelle, he immediately noticed something odd. Michelle never asked why the police were there, or even what was going on. Becoming suspicious, he realized his interview with a potential witness was now becoming an interrogation with a suspect. In the beginning, Michelle stuck to her and Joe's story about attempting to get married in Las Vegas. She eventually confessed to the murders while mentioning money at least 30 times. In 2008, prosecutors announced they'd be seeking the death penalty for both Joe and Michelle. If Michelle received the death penalty, she'd be the first woman in the state of Washington. Because this was now a capital punishment case, the prosecution took its time, painstakingly collecting evidence to prove its case. However, one crucial piece of evidence was missing, the murder weapons. Even though Michelle had shown detectives exactly where they got rid of the guns, extensive searches of the river turned up nothing. The 357 Magnum would be found three years later by a pair of teenage farm boys playing in the river. 
Years and years passed after the murders, without Michelle and Joe going to trial. The death penalty issue had become highly political, and the cause behind the extreme delays. The judge in both cases ruled the state could not seek the death penalty, but was overturned by the state Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the governor publicly stated no executions would be allowed while he was in office. Joe McEnroe finally went to trial in 2015, seven years later, for the first-degree murder of six members of the Anderson family. Although found guilty, the jury couldn't agree on the death sentence. Instead, Joe was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Failure to secure a punishment of death in Joe's trial was embarrassing to the state, and they announced they'd no longer seek the death penalty for Michelle. By the time her trial began in 2016, Michelle hadn't spoken a word to her defense team in years, and they didn't have much to work with. At her trial, the defense declined to make an opening argument and rarely cross-examined witnesses for the prosecution. When she declined to testify on her own behalf, the defense rested having called no witnesses of their own, and their closing arguments offering an unconvincing case. Astonishingly, it was revealed Joe and Michelle had over $20,000 in their bank accounts, a fact that makes the motivation for such a horrific crime even more inexplicable. After three days of deliberating, the jury returned a guilty verdict on all six counts of murder in the first degree, and Michelle was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Years after the murders, friends, family, and Carnation's community still struggled to understand what could have motivated the brutal events on that Christmas Eve. Jealousy, greed, and bitter resentment have all been presented as explanations. Still, it's difficult to imagine any of these motivations resulting in the savage murders of an entire family. Six people, including two small children. The lack of motivation or reasonable explanation impedes a sense of closure for many. According to her own defense team, Michelle Anderson was unstable, paranoid, and a spoiled brat. Michelle's paranoia caused her to perceive almost every action by her family as a sign of betrayal, and she began believing in her own delusions. As her feelings of rage took over, Joe tagged along for the ride. It's been suggested Joe may have suffered from folie de, also known as shared psychosis or shared delusional disorder. The illness involves a person called the primary, who transfers delusions to the second person, the secondary. The primary or dominant person in the relationship already has a pattern of delusions, which in the case of Michelle, was witnessed by those closest to her. However, the secondary person doesn't generally have any history of this. Clinical psychologist Dr. Christina Frazzani explains why it may have been speculated that both Joe and Michelle fit the criteria of folie de, beginning with Joe. 
He was described as having been susceptible to interpersonal influence and being very introverted and socially isolated beginning in childhood and lasting all the way through adulthood. He was reportedly estranged from his family of origin for five years before the murders, leaving him even more susceptible to that influence. Imagine feeling alone after having been picked on or feeling different and isolated for years, and then finally finding someone you connect with, but who isolates you from the outside world and then begins to explain to you that they've been in a horrible, abusive situation at the hands of their family. If the secondary person has been dominated in a previous family relationship, then he would have been that much more susceptible to being emotionally dependent on Michelle or on a significant other as an adult, because that dependent attachment from childhood is kind of where that manifests as an adult. One of the factors in a folia do is the person who's primary or dominant having disordered personality traits. And in this case, there's no mention of Michelle actually having a personality disorder. I'm just bringing this up because there are some personality disorders, especially those in cluster B, which would be narcissism, antisocial, histrionic, and borderline, that impact relationships and may lead to rage and revenge and just really dysfunctional interpersonal behavior. There's no solid information about Michelle's mental health, except indicating depression, anxiety, and paranoia. But I want to point out a few important possible factors. Again, I'm just speculating here. First of all, Michelle has stated that she endured abuse and her close connection with her brother Scott was said to be a result of them having endured the abuse together. But other reports state that there was no evidence of abuse from her parents. However, if it happened, enduring abuse as a child would be one possible precipitating factor that could lead to depression, anxiety, and anger. There are also reports of anger specifically that Michelle was overheard yelling at Joseph and ridiculing him and criticizing him for not holding down a job or bringing in enough money. For the brutal and senseless murders of an entire family, there will never be closure. But perhaps there is hope for a path of moving forward. In the words of one of Judy's colleagues spoken at Michelle's sentencing, for some, that first step may be found in forgiveness. You may not deserve to be forgiven, but you are. I personally felt so much more peace for forgiving you, and I'm sorry your mom's not going to be there to mail you care packages. I know she would have. She was that special of a person. Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to 
mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run